I ask you to turn in your copies of the Scripture to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I had intended to preach from Psalm 127, created to be the life givers, uh, preaching about women and their, their uh, calling as uh, mothers. However, uh, because of the events of this past week, I chose to change the topic of my sermon The sermon title today, The Arrogance of the Modern Versus Godly Obedience. And The Arrogance of the Modern, that reference comes from a book I've been reading by David Hall of that title, The Arrogance of the Modern. So today's text, primary text, will be 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 15, with primary, primary focus on verses 8 through 15. But I'll also be reading from Luke 13 and Romans 11. Here, once again, the very Word of God. Therefore, I exalt, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. And now from Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. He also spoke this parable. This is speaking of Christ's parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that you can cut it down. And then from Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 16. For the the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, 
and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say that branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive trees? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, today we are going to consider the events of this past week, some of those events. There were monumental events in the world and uh, similar events in our own denomination. And so as I address these things, I pray that you would give me clarity of thought, that you would give the congregation ears to hear, and that in all, Father, whether they be my words or what we've heard We pray that our actions would conform to Your Word. That Your Word would prevail in our lives. We pray, Father, for our denomination. We need help. We need strength and wisdom. We need men who are courageous and full of the Spirit and who desire to do the will of God. Men who fear You. Make us a people who fear You. Make us a people who delight in Your Word and who desire to fulfill it for the testimony of our Lord and Savior Jesus. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Brethren, this past week our denomination's leaders met in Mobile, Alabama for the annual General Assembly. That assembly is for the purpose of evaluating the effectiveness of our denominational committees and agencies as well as the church as a whole in executing the Great Commission by this branch of Christ's church. Is this branch bearing fruit? Is it dormant? Is it dying? Or is it dead? The evidence from this past week seemed to be that our best assessment is our denomination is bearing very little fruit and near dormancy. This should have been disturbing to the commissioners of our denomination, and for some I would say it was disturbing. But most of the commissioners seem to be elated with our denomination, the PCA, having taken great strides by passing two particular resolutions. One resolution dealt with unconfessed sins by individuals, congregations, and presbyteries for racist racist actions taken against black Americans during the civil rights era. I will be discussing that overture next Sunday during Sunday school as I report 
to the congregation on the actions of the assembly. The second major resolution that was passed dealt with establishing a study committee to study, and I quote, the issue of women serving in the ministry of the church, end quote. That study committee is to be made up of, quote, competent men and women representing the diversity of opinion within the PCA, end quote. Furthermore, that committee is to produce, quote, a pastoral letter to be proposed and approved by the General Assembly and sent to all churches, encouraging them to, one, promote the practice of women in ministry, two, appoint women to serve alongside elders and deacons in the pastoral work of the church, and three, hire women on church staffs in appropriate ministries, end quote. The resolution also included four issues that are to be given particular attention, which includes again, and again I quote, the biblical basis, theology, history, nature, and authority of ordination, end quote. Brethren, this is the third time such a study committee has been proposed in our denomination. Both at the 36th and 37th General Assemblies, similar proposals were soundly defeated. But this year at the 44th General Assembly, the recommendation of the Permanent Committee on Administration was successful in getting the measure passed. But what does this mean for the denomination? This means the moderator of the assembly is currently in the process of appointing, quote, a study committee, end quote, to draft a pastoral letter to the entire denomination that is to comply with the predetermined parameters I mentioned earlier. Most study committees take two years to accomplish their task. I suspect since the outline of this letter is already predetermined, this study committee will be able to report back to the 45th General Assembly next June. I'm reporting this to you, the Congregation of Trinity, because these actions appear to be moving toward a direct violation of the scriptural teachings of Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. It is there I want us to direct our attention this morning. The Apostle Paul is giving to his dear friend and son in the faith, Timothy, instructions on how to form the leadership of the church and how the members of the church are to conduct themselves in true piety. You'll note that the very next chapter is a discussion on the qualifications of overseers or presbyters or elders, if you will, all of which those terms are used in that passage. Here in chapter 2, our text, a twofold directive is given to Timothy regarding the conduct of the women in the church. And the directive deals with teaching. And it reads as follows, beginning in verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Here we clearly see that women in the church are one, not to teach men, and two, not to have authority over them. These directives of Paul are given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God the Spirit is giving the church of Jesus Christ directives through his servant, the Apostle Paul, and these 
two things are God's directives. Women are not to teach men, nor are they to have authority over men in the church. Now before I progress further, I want to say that in next week's sermon I will be dealing with passages that seem to mitigate against this twofold directive. But for today's lesson, we will consider the rationale Paul gives for these directives and consequences of obedience and disobedience to these directives in light of the study committee that will be reporting to the General Assembly. Now, ladies of Trinity, I want to speak to you. In the days in which we live, you are undoubtedly prodded and tempted toward an egalitarian mentality as it relates to your roles in society when compared to men. Since the fall, women have been cursed with a desire to have authority at least equal with men, if not superior to men. This temptation is exacerbated by the temptation for men to abdicate their God-given responsibilities and to allow women to do anything and everything men are responsible to do. The fall affects both men and women. In the fall, women desire to, to be in authority over men, and men desire to abdicate their authority at every turn. Oh, what webs fallen men weave. Just as at the fall, Adam was timid about doing his responsibility to defend Eve from the temptations of Satan, men are just as timid today about doing their responsibilities in the family, the church, and in civil matters. The thrust of verses 13 through 15 in our text teach us that the order of creation of man and woman was not happenstance. On the contrary, it speaks to authority in God's created order. Let's read again 13 through 15. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. The forming of Adam and then Eve in verse 13 harkens back to women being created as a helpmeet to Adam. Adam was created and given the dominion mandate. His duties were clearly expressed by God. Eve's duties are categorized broadly in the purpose for which she was created. As God stated, Genesis 2.18, that she is to be a helper. Helpers are to be directed by those they are helping. Thus, women function best when they are under the direction of their husbands, helping their husbands accomplish their duties before God. This description is immediately followed in our text by the greatest way a woman can be a helper to her husband. Part of the dominion mandate was to fill the earth, and this cannot be accomplished without the woman's involvement. Can it? Yet this is also a very dangerous responsibility for women. The birthing of a child is dangerous, innately dangerous. Many women die while giving birth. Not as many as there used to be, but still it is quite a dangerous activity. 
But here God promises safety to women who act in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. What does this have to do with verses 11 and 12 that immediately precede the discussion on the created order? Well, it appears that Paul is appealing to the created order prior to the fall as an example for women to follow in the church. Prior to the fall, Eve was full of faith, love, and holiness with self-control. And it was this self-control that Eve's downfall where she stumbled. Had she continued in obedience to God and sought her husband's direction while being tempted by Satan, she may not have sinned. Her lack of self-control affected her holiness, her love for God and Adam, and her faith. All trust in God's directives was lost when she lost her self-control. She became a law unto herself when she did eat. I would commend each of us in the congregation to do a word study through the Bible on the word self-control. It is fascinating to see how often often God calls us to self-control. And it's also fascinating to see the circumstances in which He does it. I think we would all benefit greatly from a study on the word self-control. Well, now I want to bring us to some applications of this passage. And again, next week I will deal with objections to what I'm saying today that have been made by some. I'll also be going further into the passage uh, with, with more detail. By way of application, though, today, I want us to consider a few applications given the resolution that was passed by our, our General Assembly. How shall we then live? That was the famous question Francis Schaeffer posed in the 1970s. Given the circumstances in which he lived, he posed that question, how do I go forward? How shall I then live? How shall we then live? Well, given the actions of this past week, how shall we then live? I suppose that it is possible that the PCA Study Committee on Women Serving in the Ministry of the Church could report back to the General Assembly affirming the instructions found in 1 Timothy 2, that women should not be an authority over men or to teach them. I will be praying to that end. However, given the tenor of the debate on the floor of the Assembly and the obfuscation engaged in by the Administrative Committee members as to why ordination was included in the Study Committee's duties, it would seem that the sausage has already been made. All that is left to see is how it will taste. Should that be the outcome of the study committee, I can unequivocally tell you that my days in the PCA are numbered. Should such clear instruction from the Scripture be ignored, the PCA shall be the barren fig tree in our Lord's parable. However, all is not lost. God rejoices in faithful remnants. Faithful remnants survived slavery in Egypt. 
Faithful remnants survived the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. The enemies of God, such as the Philistines and the Canaanites and others, did not overcome a faithful remnant. And God's faithful remnants survived captivities under the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Romans. Brethren, God raises up the humble and puts down the haughty. He watches intently to see if we shall live in obedience. And this is all the more reason we must follow the words of Paul from Romans 11 that I read earlier. You will say then, branches are broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Do not be haughty, but fear. Oh, that those words would have rung in the ears of the assembly this past week. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For you, if you were cut off or cut out of an olive tree, which is, by wild, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? My second application comes from the ordinary means of grace. We make much of those means of grace in this church, and rightly so. The Apostles' Doctrine, which is at stake here. This is the very thing that's at stake. The Apostles' Doctrine. The Apostle Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's the doctrine that we are supposed to embrace. The Apostles' Doctrine. Prayer, brethren, prayer is needed now more than ever. It's always needed, but the urgency is upon us. The urgency is upon us. That our moderator would appoint people to the study committee who are faithful to the Scriptures, who fear God and walk in His ways. The breaking of bread... We are to testify of the truths of the Scripture before the throne of grace in what way? Well, in many ways, but one of those ways is what we're about to do in just a few moments. We are one body in Christ Jesus. And it was His body that was given for our redemption. To honor that one body is to keep His commandments. Jesus said in John chapter 14, If you love Me, keep My commandments. That's not a suggestion or a mere proposition. It is the living will of God. And lastly, fellowship. Fellowship is at stake. We are to live as one body. 
But when men brazenly suggest that we should throw off the cords that tie us to our Heavenly Father and His teachings, that fellowship could be broken. We consider the darkness of our days because of what's happening around us outside of the church. But brethren, be assured, as I've said many times recently, judgment begins in the household of God, according to Peter. And these are sober days. Again, I want to encourage you, not all is lost. God provides. He provides miraculously at times, and that's an expectation that we ought to have from His holy hands. All good gifts and all perfect gifts come from the Father of lights who is in heaven, James teaches us. He also says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. God is the one who possesses the will of our church. Let us solicit His help that that will would embrace His teachings. Let us pray together.